Young adults, thanks for joining us. All right, we are this morning, you know, by God's providence, we were not able to gather last week, but we want to continue our little mini-series on reconciliation and thinking through not only, you know, constantly thinking as we go through it, though there might be a certain focus that we're zeroing in on, always the dual way in which we're speaking of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others. What does that look like in consistency and pursuing to be up to date on every relationship, horizontally and vertically, especially as we reflect on the Lord's table this morning? We are going to uh, conclude next week and then uh, I've got a couple other things that I'd really like to teach on, but I may not. We want to begin uh, studying the book of Proverbs together, and we're going to end up moving across the hall and just be able to sit in chairs and dialogue with each other. And I'm going to do my best to try to email out some questions ahead of time, get it like a week ahead of, and I realize that not everyone partakes of that. Uh, If we can help you in thinking through the text before we get together, we want to do that, realizing that not, uh, not everyone does. We pick up thinking about forgiveness, which is the, uh, what we ended talking about last time. Think about the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, especially in regards to how we think about our sin and the confrontation of it, receiving reproof. When somebody becomes a Christian, that is a colossal demonstration of power in so many ways. When a person trusts Christ for reconciliation to God, huge things happen. Christ's lordship is joyfully embraced. The soul's knee is eagerly bowed. The guilt is instantly lifted. The Bible is hungrily inhaled. And in the most glorious display of the Spirit's power, the Spirit takes up residence in the soul. It's amazing. He's a great gift, essential to our well-being. And as He settles in, He begins to storm the castle of our sin. I think one of the best ways to capture our thinking about life as a Christian, life as a believer is either using the word struggle or fight. The fight's on against any remaining sin. And so the Spirit comes to slay the fortress of the flesh. And the true power of the Spirit is demonstrated by an identifying of the flesh, the attacking of that flesh, and the subduing of the flesh. That's what the Spirit does in us. There are battles sometimes where it seems that 
we come away not as the victor, but as more of a victim where our flesh uh, prevails. But over the long haul, the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. As, as you think about the tenses of salvation, at the moment of salvation, God releases us from the penalty of our sin from that point forth forever. And though at that moment He also implants power over remaining sin, it's, it's not that it does away necessarily with all the luster. You know, when I think of uh, James 1 where James talks about the process of us going into sin where Satan, uh, the, the terminology James uses is from uh, hunting and fishing. And uh, you know, Satan takes from his temptation tackle box something that uh, glimmers in your eyes that doesn't glimmer in somebody else's. And he knows what works well in your life so that uh, we are drawn away and enticed. And uh, if we allow it to, sin is conceived. One of the great demonstrations of the Spirit's power is how we respond when people in our walk with Christ, especially in the church, help remove some blinders in our lives in regards to sin. It's painful, but through the necessary inquiry of others, the Spirit works to identify and crucify. You know, there are sins that we commit that are sins of commission and sins of omission, things that we do we should not do and things that we don't do that we ought to be doing. And many times the Lord will use others to help us in that journey. And sometimes it's, it's painful. Uh, when, when somebody confronts us in our sin, maybe they use the wrong process or uh, uh, a less than helpful attitude, which can be wrong in, the, in of their own selves, but is there the kernel of the truth that God is still using them as a tool in our lives? Reading through Proverbs this month, back on the 15th, I came to uh, some of the Proverbs that we're going to look into in the, in the future. Take your Bibles and turn with me to just a couple. Turn back to Proverbs 15, just to kind of put this thought in your mind to meditate on. This is, a couple of these Proverbs that I'm mentioning is what I had already talked to us about in regards to this new bent in life of not being so, there's a term I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, defensive, that's what I'm trying, you know, in, uh, not being so defensive but being teachable and moldable. Proverbs 15 verses 31 and 32, there's a lot of these different Proverbs throughout the book of Proverbs that deal with this issue of, of a humble teachability and having an ear that bends over to hear, a heart that is inclined to listen. And here he talks about our ears, bigger and small. Proverbs 15, 31, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Go back to verse 12, a 
a similar thought. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. So, if we are somebody who cannot have our, our sin confronted and can't respond in genuine humility to confrontation, it is a potential sign, and I'm using those two words intentionally when I say potential sign. They could be a potential sign that we do not have the Holy Spirit. I did not say that when somebody is stiff-necked, you say, well, you're not a Christian. There's a a far cry from that and considering, well, do I have the gospel graces that the Bible said would be resident in my life? So I'm not saying that a, a person is not a Christian if they struggle to respond humbly to confronted sin at times. But if we are habitually responding in a fleshly way to confronted sin, we'd be hard pressed to come to the conclusion that we're indwelt by the spirit of reconciliation. So, having kind of set the plate for forgiveness, let's pick up our, our lesson. We were talking about whom we forgive. We, we mentioned both from an attitude standpoint as well as a transaction. We forgive people based on a verbal acknowledgement of repentance. Somebody doesn't repent, we can't necessarily um, forgive them. I, I just kind of threw a bunch of thoughts down at that bottom bullet point, miscellaneous issues related to forgiveness. We could spend weeks talking about this subject, but I want to kind of put the lesson to bed. Think about this. Confronting sin versus covering sin. There are sometimes things don't need to be confronted. Things that uh, you can just kind of move on with. Love covers, what's the verse say? Multitude of sins. There's a lot of things you can just walk away from. We need to pray for wisdom as to what those situations are. But when we cover a sin, that happens after the sin has been dealt with, not before. It's not a matter of ignoring sin. If you wanted to jot down a couple of references, one would be First, first Peter 4.8. Another would be James 5.20. This is to enact forgiveness. We do take sin serious, and when we're talking about covering sin, it's not cover up sin. How about apologizing versus asking for forgiveness? I had mentioned during our, our last time, when you just throw an apology on something, it's typically, not always, but typically more of, a, more of a Band-Aid situation. It's one that doesn't possibly own up to what it should to. Uh, it's more of a, sorry, it's been a hard day. Uh, comes from, the, uh, from the, ter- the Greek term apologia, 
for offering a defense. That gets to the kernel of what apologies typically do. We're not talking about that when we talk about forgiveness. We're not talking about being defensive. In essence, we're making a defense to God. That is blasphemy. Implying, you know, when, when, uh, you know, when, when somebody says, well, do I need to forgive God? What would we call that? Blasphemy. Uh, implying God sinned. God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't start with you. How about uh, f- forgiving unbelievers? Does an unbeliever comprehend sin? They do not understand sin. So there can't be that forgiveness. If somebody is dead and depraved with no ability to respond righteously to God, you need to press the real issue because there's a, there's a deeper issue than the need for forgiveness from you. They need forgiveness from God. There's the gospel issue. We have to address the issue of lostness. Maybe you come alongside the person, I'd really love to forgive you from my heart, but a far greater issue is your relationship to Jesus Christ. What about... Forgiving dead people, there's a lot of therapy involved today in uh, forgiving dead people. Doesn't that smack of necromancy and it doesn't really deal with reality? How can a, what can a dead person do? When I was talking to somebody this week, we were going through, the, through uh, a lesson on salvation, and I said, okay, since, since in Ephesians 2 we're told that we were dead in our trespasses, uh, we're dead people. I, I use the illustration that I typically use. I've done a lot of funerals and nobody has ever sat up in their casket and responded saying, Pastor, I didn't like your funeral sermon. A dead person can't do anything. It's already been dealt with. You can only respond to Christ when you're alive. So when, yeah, go ahead, Janice. You've got to deal with your heart in the present. And it, yes, I think like it has to be dealt with today and move on. Change doesn't take place in the past. It always takes place in the present. I can't do anything. What I can do is confess my sins to God of the past and recognize them, making no excuse for it that God, I was wrong. Like, suppose somebody um, proceeds with an unbiblical divorce and they come to faith in Christ. And they're tempted to live under the cloud for the next years of their lives of, I really screwed up. You can't do that. You can't live that way. You must deal biblically with life today in reality and move on. You cannot live under that black cloud of, I'm always going to be suffering from this unmet relationship. Um, we, we must deal with it. And uh, so if, you've, if there's somebody that's dead, things are all taken care of. The judge of the earth has already accomplished justice. Whether... Um, 
whether they're in heaven or in hell. So we don't have to deal, uh, we don't have to live in the, in, in the past. Or, um, or how about, um, maybe this touches on that too, Janice, in regards to people talking about forgiving ourselves. I don't know as though that's necessarily a biblical concept either. When we sin, is, the, is sin an, something that's abstract or something that is reality? When we sin, we sin against somebody. We either sin against God or we sin against others. What's that? Yeah, even, even our sin against others is a sin, and David helps point that out for us. So we need to be, uh, deal on, uh, with biblical terminology. Uh, all of life through a biblical grid, uh, part of life is that we sin. We make mistakes. Matter of fact, it's not abnormal to us. It is normal for us to be wrong. We ought to assume that I am wrong, not that I am right, right? Ray. Okay. I think from what you just said, that if an unsaved person commits a sin against a Christian, now we know as a Christian that it's against God first, the Savior. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so a person that's not saved commits a sin against him, say they are verbally abused or whatever the case may be. Right. What I am saying is that there's a far greater issue that must be dealt with if, if that, that to just deal with it on the level of human forgiveness with each other, that's more of a band-aid. It doesn't get to the gospel issue of the heart because they can't comprehend. They might say, yeah, I've, I've, I've uh, buried the hatchet. W- what they understand about forgiveness is not the biblical understanding because they, they're saying, well, I, I'll, I'll forgive you until you wrong me again and I'll go back and grab that hatchet that has the handle above ground next time you wrong me. There's no comprehension of the lavishness and the consistency of the daily forgiveness that we've re- personally received by our Father in heaven. And so there's not that working knowledge of how... how for- so let's look at that and see if that helps uh, uh, clear some of this up. Go with me to Luke 17. Jesse? No, it's forgiveness. Yeah. And, and if, I don't, if I don't clear any muddy waters, make sure to let me know... I'm here in Luke 17. How do we... Okay, for the recording, thank you. Luke 17, how do we forgive? Immediately, repeatedly, lavishly. Let's start with that first one, immediately. Luke 17... Verse 3, be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. What comes after him? Not a, 
Huh? I'm, I'm looking for punctuation. Period. And, and I'm making a point of the period to help in your mind for you to think, this is cut and dry, scripture de- how, how Scripture deals with it. Be on guard. Why? Because we often don't clue in are n- and are not as sober-minded in the situation as possibly we ought to be. If your brother sins, rebuke. If he repents, forgive. Period. Cut and dry how Scripture makes it. So there's the immediacy of the forgiveness. Notice the next verse. Verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and the obvious assumption is, guess what? He's going to. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Seven times a day. In other words, can't wait for the fruit of repentance. No wonder why Jesus' disciples responded to the teaching in the way they did in verse 5. So he makes it cut and dry in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke. If he repents, forgive. If he does it throughout the day, time without end, returns again and again and again. And as you're thinking about your relationship to the Father who does the exact same thing to you, and yet you try to withhold from your brother, they're they're thinking, this is over the top. This is impossible. This is so unlike me. So they, pray, they, they said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. This is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy what God did in Christ and sending the spotless one to die for sinners. This is over the top. I think the problem is our view of self When we deal with forgiveness, we treat forgiveness as a privilege, not a responsibility. That, I think, is wrong. That is unbiblical. Forgiveness is not a toy to be withheld at your whim or mine to be used as a manipulative tool of our own sin. And I'll pause for the uncomfortable pause to think about. It's our duty. It's our obligation. If Christ can forgive a lifetime of sin, these temporary sins that we forgive, it's nothing. Yeah, it hurts. You know, you, you got a relationship with somebody and they blow it. Well, guess what? If they didn't blow it, you would or I would. This is, the, this is part of living in a fallen world. That's why I wanted us to start 2015 off with just a fresh reflection on reconciliation that I am guilty. And God gave me that tool of conscience to show me my guilt that I might come and repent And that we might have the kind of forgiveness that is immediate and repeated 
and lavish. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. You got the guy at First Baptist Church of Corinth who sinned so severely, and so you got the church discipline situation. Serious, weighty, heavy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about this reaffirmation of your love. When you're causing sorrow, and there's burden through the weight of dealing with sin, which is not pretty, it doesn't smell pretty, it's not fun. There's affliction from it, there's anguish of heart. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient, suffi- sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. When somebody indulges the flesh and they pursue sin for a season, and you go through the biblical process of restoration, seeking, calling for repentance, and he's loving his sin, and it finally gets to the final steps of church discipline where the guy is thrown out of the church. Heavy weight. The entire church has come after him, pleading, would you get right with God? Get right with us. We want God's blessing in your life. We want to be restored to fellowship. And there's that weight that needs to be lifted at repentance. This lavish forgiveness. That's how our Father is. Ready to forgive. Abounding in loving kindness. I think my favorite New Testament example the poster child of lavish forgiveness is the father of prodigal son, is he not? The father of the prodigal illustrates this. If he, his son finally comes to his senses, he deals with his sin, he comes back home, and he doesn't even make it home, dad meets him. If dad saw him coming, what does that indicate that must have been previous to that? He must have been searching. He must have been looking. He ran to meet him. And any self-respecting Jewish man doesn't run. And everything about the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son shows that the father's over the top in every step of the way. He runs to meet him throws the robe on the sun, kill the fatted calf, spare no expense. This is party time. Son's dealt with sin. Son is home. I have the privilege of forgiving, which I'm not withholding as some, some, some toy, but as a duty to forgive. You know, this is such a great subject for us to think through at the Lord's table, you know. Maybe you've been holding on to something in sin for maybe in years. You know, it, would, it would be prudent for you to let the elements pass so that you can seek that reconciliation. So we've gone from, from guilt and 
to repentance, to forgiveness. What is the next concept to consider in this whole process of reconciliation? Replacement. Yes, sir. Right. In regards to sin against an unbeliever, you cannot have the full process of restoration completed. You, you put it in some of the terminology like what I used earlier, that I would love to forgive you, but your greatest need is to be given, forgiven by the Father because they can't necessarily respond in the reception of that forgiveness because they're still under, under the weight of, of guilt. They're not dealing with their sin. Right. And, and you can seek to forgive them for any wrong, because for you to hold a, a grudge would make their sin now your sin, because there is a harboring to any degree of Hatred. Yeah, you might might not castigate them or some nth degree, but there is still a level of in your thought life that you're at odds with them. You do, but your forgiveness does not elicit God's forgiveness, and that needs to, I think, be very clearly communicated. Any opportunity that God takes us through, if there is no, no luck and no chance, everything is divine providence, even when there's relationship issues, God has just provided an opportunity for the gospel. And we don't want to miss it. We want to be sober-minded of how can we use this. And so, yes, you forgive them any animosity that you have had towards them, but they still stand guilty and condemned by God until they respond in faith and repentance. So that they not think, well, everything's just great, because everything's not great. You've got somebody who's a servant of God and somebody who's a servant of the devil. We've got two fathers. That's why you know, when we pray for friends with unequal yoke, we know exactly some of the things to pray for. It's like you've got somebody that's been enlightened by the gospel and somebody that is living in darkness. That causes the tension. So always make it a gospel issue, not a me thing. And what's it for me to say to you? I forgive you. It's no big deal. My father forgives me seven times seven a day. Does that help clarify? Go ahead. So, two believers, one seeks forgiveness. Yes. That is contingent on repentance. Uh, so, forgiveness is not granted unless there's genuine repentance. Right. Which, let me stop you at this to make sure I'm hearing. So, like, at that point, if, if in this account in Luke 17, Jesus says he returns to you 70 times 7, well, there's not even any time yet 
to validate, because a lot of times people want to be fruit inspectors of, are there, is there fruit of repentance? Well, I don't have time for that. You know, one day, I don't know if they might not be repentant, but you have to respond when, they, when there's that interchange with them and they are coming to you for, in, in repentance for you to grant the forgiveness. That's a time to go back and communicate with them that you, that you have grave concern because they're living out a pattern that doesn't show the repentance. I haven't had another thought, but it just left me before. Um, it needed to be said, but it... Um, hopefully the thought will come back. Yes. Uh, the unbeliever asks for forgiveness. Yes. You can grant it, but then you're additionally pointing them to, no, I forgive you, but this is still between you and the Lord. Because they're living under the wrath of God. Yes. In this whole process of change with us and others and us and God, there is that principle of replacement. If I am accustomed to a sinful life pattern, certain habits in life that are not honoring to Christ, there needs to be replacement. When we come to Christ, God forgives us of our sin, past, present, and future. There's restoration. There needs to be this replacement. Replacement's taught everywhere in Scripture. How does the Psalms begin at the very front end of the book? Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's all I used to be as an unbeliever, as a pagan. And so, my sin patterns, my habits of life, when I was the Lord of my life, serving my own desires, my own passions, those need to be changed. So when we're praying through, Lord, would you reveal sin in my life? I, I know some things that I need to confess to you, but there's other things I don't know. Well, let's just, you just start writing, take out your notepad and start writing down. What's, what's life been like as an unbeliever? Has there been the putting off of what dishonors God and replacing it for the glory of our Christ with righteous deeds. Sir. For they knew not what they did. Yes. I think that uh, you could use Stephen as an example for that kind of forgiveness on a, in a human realm as well as, who, who's, who's a, a premier example above Stephen? Jesus on the cross, Father forgive them for they know not. Now, we've got to exegete Jesus' prayer. What's, what's he saying when he prays, Father forgive them? 
He's not offering at, uh, this papal pardon from the cross of, uh, Lord, don't send these people to hell. They must still deal with their own sin against the Father. But Jesus wasn't holding anything, you know, any of the... You know, he had just gotten done with his experiences of the beard being plucked out and being spat upon and all these things that are taken on a relation, relational front. Thank you for that example, Ray. Uh, so replacement. The concept of replacement must involve both a putting on, off and a, and a putting on. We're talking about being serious-minded, a radical provision. Some have called this dehabituation and rehabituation. Old sinful patterns are replaced with new godly ones in order for the change to be pleasing to God and to last over time. What would this, what would this look like in the, in the life of a believer as, as you are going through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus teaching us how we deal with sin, sin as a believer, uh, sin as one who has been enlightened by the Spirit of God who can actually think with a full deck because He's got the resident Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if you're out, I offend you. What do you do? Pluck it out. Right hand offend you? Cut it off. Now the little, little, literalist would uh, say, you know, uh, Jesus is teaching us to be uh, uh, sadistic. Uh, it's a masochist that just loves pain and God, God's obligated to shine upon me because of... No, that's not what Jesus... What Jesus is teaching, radical action. Takes seriousness, our own old sinful patterns and replace them with new ones. We're talking about mortification by the power of the Holy Spirit that is both passive and active. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh is passive as we are being acted upon by the Spirit of God but also active in that we apply ourselves and all the spiritual graces and disciplines God's given us. This is a Philippians 2. Work out your salvation, for it's God which works in you. This, this dual role of the Spirit and us, a divine co-op. So, what are some characteristics of replacing so that, you know, if, if before Christ we sinned, we love to sin make the relationship that much worse by compounding sin. Well, we're not wanting to do that anymore. We're wanting to honor Christ, honor the Lord. And so what are some characteristics of replacement that we can honor the relationship we have with the Lord? First of all is breaking and establishing habits. I was reading from... Uh, Dr. Adams, Dr. J. Adams in, in uh, preparation for a class, and I thought this was helpful. I couldn't uh, improve upon it, but he gives this scenario. Think, think with me as I, as I share this with you. So, a way or a manner of life is a habitual way of living. God gave man a marvelous capacity that we call habit. We're creatures of habit. We create habits. And uh, you want to see me sin? Mess with my habit. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Your yesterday didn't go as, as planned because uh, when I lose structure, life just kind of falls apart. But uh, Adams is dealing with this dehabituation. He says, whenever one does something long enough, it becomes a part of him. So when we're discipling others, when we offer counsel, we must remember that these people are fully endowed with this capacity. They have habits like we have habits. We all have habits. Sometimes we need to point out the dynamic of habit to those that we're discipling. When we do so, we need to stress the fact habits are hard to change. We don't, we don't necessarily like change. Change is hard. It's work. One person put it this way. They're, they're dealing with Fred. Fred, let's take an example. Did you put your left or right shoe on first when you got up today? Ah, it took you a while to answer that, didn't it? Maybe you don't even know yet. You don't think about where to begin anymore. You just do it. You don't consciously say to yourself, now I'm going to put my shoes on this morning. I shall begin with the right foot and then the left. You don't think at all. You just do it without thinking about it. You just get up and unconsciously do what you've done hundreds of other mornings. You probably don't know which arm you put into the shirt first, unless you've got a bad shoulder, then you always know which one to put in first. We no longer find it necessary to think about details. That's the capacity that God has given us. You know, as as we're parenting and you're teaching your kids, you know, especially as... uh, Boys are becoming men. It's like, what, what's, what's one of the habits that needs to be put off? You know, the, the Saturday night shower, whether you need it or not, once a week, just doesn't cut it anymore. Time to replace a dirty old habit with a brand new one. Men take showers every day. Son, let's dehabituate and rehabituate. Let's do away with inappropriate habits and let's start new ones. What a picture this is of life as a Christian, figuring out what are some patterns that we've been involved in, some habits, maybe habits where we haven't just been captivating enough time for the kingdom agenda. Here's another example. Think of the first time you sat behind an automobile wheel. You know, I got, uh, I got one driver uh, that was added to my insurance this year with many more to, to follow. I could not believe that my insurance doubled with uh, one driver. But uh, you get behind the wheel, and do you remember back then, it was several years for everybody here, Remember what it was like, how overwhelming it was? You got all these gadgets looking at you, and you're scared spitless because you're in the driver's seat. You think, here's the wheel. It looked ten times bigger than it was. Here's a gear shift. Here's a complex instrument panel and foot pedals down below, especially, Ray, we were talking about the old car with the, uh, the light dimmer down on the floor and all these gadgets. What does each one do? I have to learn to use and coordinate all of these, and I got to do it at the same time. Remember how overwhelming it was? That is how specific and concentrated we ought to be on habits. What are we doing? What has become second nature that can be put off and put on to the glory of Christ? And we'll finish that thought next week as we look at thoughts, knowing that a thought becomes an action as a man thinks in his heart. So is he.
Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Help us to think through life cautiously as to how to change for the glory of Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we commit it to your care in Christ's name. Amen.